WMRA News. I'm Bob Levicky. Democrats in Richmond defeat two bills aimed at transgender students, and pollution controls for farmers will be delayed. We have a General Assembly update and analysis from Jeff Shapiro. And a Stanton author writes about the presidents born in Virginia and the historic sites tell their stories. President's Day is coming up on Monday. This is the WMRA Daily for Friday, February 17th. Charlottesville woman is in jail after being accused of abducting her teenage son from the campus of Fishburn Military School in Waynesboro. The newsleader reports that Stephanie Gibson Sneed, age 42, faces a felony charge of kidnapping and a misdemeanor charge of contributing to the delinquency of a minor. Authorities said Sneed's son, a 14-year-old cadet at the school, went missing last Friday at about 6.30 a.m., According to an affidavit for a search warrant, an officer from the Waynesboro Police Department said a cell phone the teen left behind on campus showed that he allegedly received text messages from his mother prior to leaving campus. In the court filing, a legal guardian for the teen told Waynesboro Police that Sneed's parental rights had been terminated before. The Virginia Employment Commission recently notified about 17,000 people that their unemployment benefit appeals will not be heard unless they were able to prove by yesterday that they were filed on time. The Richmond Times-Dispatch reports that VEC Commissioner Kerry Roth said the U.S. Department of Labor agreed last month to an initiative that would reduce the current backlog of appeals. But advocates for the uh, unemployed have raised concerns. The Central Virginia Legal Aid Society's litigation director says the move represents, quote, a vast denial of due process of law. Senate Democrats defeated two bills uh, on Thursday that would have restricted transgender students' participation in school athletics and required officials to notify parents if their child identifies as trans in school, measures that faced strenuous objections from LGBTQ advocacy groups. Supporters said the bills would have promoted fairness for female athletes and protected parental rights, and the measures cleared the floor of the Republican-controlled House of Delegates over other warnings that the legislation would harm already at-risk youth. The bill's defeat means that no legislation on school accommodations or health care for trans children will reach Governor Glenn Youngkin's desk during this year's regular legislative session. A House of Delegates subcommittee killed a bill this week that would have required the state to disclose who's using credit cards paid off with Virginia tax revenue. Democratic State Senator Scott Surville introduced the bill to amend Virginia's Freedom of Information Act so the names of state employees could not be redacted from records. The Virginia Mercury reports that the bill was supported by the Virginia Coalition for Open Government. After passing the Senate 39-0, to the proposal died in the House of Delegates subcommittee on a 4-3 party-line vote. A compromise between agriculture groups and environmentalists has been reached that will delay pollution controls for Virginia farmers. The Virginia Mercury reports that companion bills in the House and Senate introduced by Republicans aimed to delay requirements to keep farm runoff from entering the Chesapeake Bay. After negotiations, the target date has been set for 2028, pushing the deadline back two years. Governor Yunkin will not commit to signing legislation during his term that would create a legal recreational marijuana marketplace for adults. Yunkin spoke to reporters on Thursday 
saying it was up to lawmakers to come up with a plan. Ben Pavier with VPM News reports. Governor Youngkin popped by Richmond's Westwood Fountain to pitch tax cuts to a friendly crowd of Republicans. It's expensive to live here and we can fix this. Youngkin wouldn't directly say whether he'll ever support legalizing a new revenue stream, retail marijuana sales. It's a General Assembly issue. I don't write legislation for them. They've got to sort this out. On Tuesday, House Republicans defeated the last remaining bill in this year's legislative session that would have legalized retail cannabis sales for adults 21 and older. A representative for Youngkin spoke out against the bill, saying the governor was focused on cracking down on intoxicating hemp products like Delta 8. J.M. Padini, director of the advocacy group Virginia Normal, responded to the governor's statement. They said Youngkin's lack of direction on cannabis sales caused multiple bills to fail, including two from his own party. Ben Pavier reporting. Well, time is winding down on the General Assembly session. It's set to adjourn next week. Virginia Public Radio's Michael Pope and Jeff Shapiro, political columnist at the Richmond Times-Dispatch, discuss what is left on the agenda and the week that was in state politics. We're standing outside of the House Appropriations Committee room on the 13th floor, lucky 13th floor of the Pocahontas building. Jeff Shapiro, we're here because there seems to be a standoff with the budget. What's the latest with that? You know, often we're talking about what the General Assembly does do. Now we're talking about something the General Assembly doesn't do, and that's complete its budget, the state's budget on time. It appears that we're heading toward another standoff between the Democratic Senate and the Republican House, this time over tweaks, changes, revisions, amendments to an existing budget. The big difference is a billion dollars in tax cuts pushed by Governor Yunkin, embraced by the House, but opposed by the Senate. And uh, there is a possibility that uh, legislators will leave town on February 25th, the day they're supposed to adjourn, without completing work on the budget. This wouldn't be the first time that happened. Well, let me ask you about that. Are we likely to end the session without a budget? Entirely possible. But, you know, what do you mean by the, the end of a session? We could be back here in the spring for the reconvened session, still working on a budget. We could go into an extended overtime working on a budget. The real deadline for completing this work is June 30th, the end of the fiscal year. But again, since we have a budget in place, if there isn't agreement on these revisions, a plan exists to pay for government. What won't happen, though, are things like pay raises for public employees. And if you're Glenn Youngkin, a $201 million fix in school aid, a consequence of a muff up by his administration, dollars that are needed most desperately by rural Reed Republican areas of the state. Well, speaking of the governor, he is working with Democrats to help attract the FBI headquarters to Virginia. What's going on with that? Now, there's a change. Glenn Youngkin, Republican, working with Democrats. Uh, there is a fevered competition between Maryland and Virginia over playing host to a new headquarters for the FBI. Virginia's case is, well, a good deal of what the FBI already has is here in Virginia, including its training facility and its crime lab at Quantico in Prince William County. The big competition now between Maryland and Virginia uh, is focused largely on equity and diversity. 
Uh, Glenn Youngkin is looking for a win on what is loosely described as economic development because to some degree he appears to be wincing over torpedoing that battery plant that Ford wanted to build, perhaps in Pennsylvania County, and has now decided to erect in its home state, Michigan. Well, let me ask you about that. We started the session with the governor saying no to these thousands of jobs that could have helped a struggling part of Southside, Virginia, and now that plant is going to Michigan? What's the reaction to that? Uh, well, there were a lot of hard feelings after the governor torpedoed the conversation with Ford, alleging it was a front for the communist Chinese party, that the decision has been made by Ford to build this plant in Michigan is really salt in the wound. All right, coming to you from outside the House Appropriations Committee room on the lucky 13th floor of the Pocahontas building. My name is Michael Pope, and we've been joined by Jeff Shapiro of the Richmond Times-Dispatch. Talk to you next week. Have a great weekend. There are 155 animal shelters in Virginia, all of them regulated by the state. As we reported earlier this week, On WMRA, a shelter in Charlottesville is the subject of an ongoing protest by former employees and volunteers. Virginia Public Radio's Sandy Hausman has more. When local pets get lost or owners can no longer care for them, they often end up here in the Charlottesville Albemarle Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, or CASPA. It depends heavily on donors and the work of volunteers. But this year, more than 100 people who worked at the shelter went public with complaints. Katie Roach, for example, claimed overcrowding was a problem during her three years on the job. When CASPA began transferring in large groups of dogs from Texas, the overflow of the dogs was housed in crates in the shelter basement for days to weeks at a time. And she claims some animals were sent into foster homes without proper testing for contagious disease. Some of these dogs tested positive for distemper virus and this potentially put community dogs at risk. Ex-staffer Morgan Struble says the pressure was on to find homes for as many animals as possible. Management had a really strong goal that they wanted to hit 5,000 adoptions in a year, and that seemed to be the only metric that was of concern. She doesn't know why, but speculates higher numbers impress donors, especially when hurricanes forced shelters in Florida and Texas to move residents north. A lot of times there was grant money attached to those animals. One volunteer who complained about conditions says she was escorted off the property and dozens of staffers like Katie Roach have resigned in protest. There was one instance where I had to get a large deaf dog to go back into a crate that was way too small for him, knowing that he wouldn't be able to get out again for another 16 hours. And he desperately was avoiding going back into that crate. After that, I knew I had to move on. So who keeps an eye on Virginia shelters? The Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services employs two inspectors who spend a few hours, even a day, reviewing shelter operations. They report to veterinarian Carolyn Bissett. If we see violations, then we're going to inspect more frequently. But on average, it's about every 12 to 18 months. In 2019, an inspector said CASPA had no critical violations, but did not have adequate procedures for deciding if dogs or cats needed veterinary treatment for controlling contagious and infectious diseases and for managing sick animals. In 2021, the inspector accused CASPA of poor record keeping, 
but Bissett said violations of this kind usually result in a warning or small fine. Fifty to a hundred dollars. They can go up to even a thousand dollars per violation, but that could be per day. So if we have a really serious situation, which we haven't gotten into in my tenure here, those certainly could mount up. State law does not speak to crowding or the use of cages, saying only that facilities must provide adequate feed water and shelter. There aren't specific dimensions in code or regulation. Basically, the animal must be able to stand up, turn around, and carry out its normal activities. We certainly have on occasion seen shelters doubling up on animals, and we need to educate those shelters that there could potentially be either disease transmission or even some behavioral issues. Critics say the Charlottesville facility has high worker turnover due to poor management and a toxic work environment promoted by the CEO. All of these concerns will presumably be considered by McGuire Woods, a prominent Virginia law firm hired by the shelter's board to conduct an investigation. The board's president declined to comment except to say the probe would take about 90 days, that all employees deserve to be treated with fairness and respect, and that the organization is committed to providing safe and humane treatment for all animals in its care. I'm Sandy Hausman. An author and archivist based in Stanton recently published a book about the presidents born in Virginia and the historic sites that tell their stories. WMRA's Randy B. Hagee reports. Author Heather Cole's book is called Virginia's Presidents, A History and Guide. It combines brief biographies of the eight presidents who were born in the Commonwealth with guides to their birthplaces, museums, and monuments, from Mount Vernon to Monticello. She was inspired to write it while homeschooling her two sons and taking them to visit the presidential homes one summer. James Madison's house, Montpelier, they do a fabulous family-friendly tour that's all focused on how we know what we know about the past. We have this letter that James Madison wrote, this piece of clothing that belonged to Dolly Madison. Her youngest was especially engaged. He found like a piece of metal, like near the parking lot. And was really excited that, you know, oh, that might be a historic piece. And he wanted to go tell the museum docents about what he had found. The book also includes information about each of the men's views on slavery. All of them grew up in homes with enslaved people, and seven of them grew up to become enslavers themselves. Here's Cole reading an excerpt. We need to understand that our founding fathers and those who came after were brilliant, talented, and flawed people who created and upheld a brand new form of government that has served us well for nearly 250 years and was built on the belief that all men who are created equal only included white landowning men and that we, the people of the United States, explicitly excluded people of color, Native Americans, and women. Cole will give a talk this President's Day, Monday, at 7 p.m. at the R.R. Smith Center for History and Art in Stanton and via Zoom. For WMRA News, I'm Randy B. Hagee. Finally today, the Commonwealth may be about to get a new official state pony. And Michael has that story. The wild ponies of Chincoteague are known all over the world, and the annual pony auction brings thousands of tourists every year. That's why Republican Delegate Robert Bloxham of Accomack County introduced a bill to make the Chincoteague pony the official state pony. It brings 60,000 people to an island of 3,000 every year. It's been a major tourist attraction for years, ever since I can remember. It just brings attention to Virginia from all over the world. The bill has some opposition from the Southwest delegation, whose members 
also have wild ponies roaming around their districts. But those ponies are not celebrated in Bloxham's bill. Delegate Israel O'Quinn is a Republican from Washington County who voted against the bill. We have wild ponies in Grayson County up on Mount Rogers, White Top area, and I think we felt like if we're going to designate a state pony that they should at least be included. So we all voted no on a uh, symbolic measure naming one set of ponies as the official state pony. The bill has already been approved by the House of Delegates and is set to stampede through the Senate before heading to the governor's desk. Reporting from the Capitol in Richmond, I'm Michael Pope. For WMRA News, I'm Bob Levicky. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy your Friday.